Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed from the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and the most scientific thing I can think to tell you about is that my child is currently obsessed with making slime. It seems it's very scientific. There's measuring. She experiments with adding different strange substances, lotion, gel, glue, makeup, dyes, pigments, all kinds of strange things, just to see what will happen. All right, and I'm Misty, and my daughter, who's three, yeah, also likes slime, but in our house, it's called unicorn poop. Why do you call it that? Because my uncle, my dear, lovely uncle, got my daughter for Christmas a unicorn that poops slime. I guess that uncle doesn't like you very much. <laughs> so all slime in my house is unicorn poop. <sighs> science is fun. Yeah, science. Science is fun. Happy Women's History Month, by the way. Yeah, and welcome back from spring break. Yeah, we're so excited spring break's over. Just kidding. Not really. So what are we talking about today? Uh, blinding people with science. Just kidding. Uh, science. Women in science. Right? Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure I know what we were talking about. That's what I'm prepared to discuss. I'm guessing, I think we all know how you want to start. Yay, history. God, you haven't been able to say it in so long. I know. You had that one stored I had a, up. a whole week off. Ready. Okay. So, let's talk about women in science. A basic background. I'm going to guess equal fair representation through the ages. Actually, kind of. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> So I want to start with the word scientist. Okay. That's a Coldplay song. Do you know that that word has no gender connotation? I guess that's true. So like actor, actress, scientist is just scientist. Yeah, you don't have a scientist S. Or a. <laughs> Early on, and I mean, going back to the 1600s. Oh, God. Yeah, real early. Uh, women contributed to science. And generally, if women were going to go into higher education, they were encouraged to study science rather than the classics. Why? Because the study of science is all about nature and observation, uh-huh. and it wasn't considered a thinking exercise. <laughs> it's funny because people, I think, have the opposite now. Very much so, right? right? Like science, hard sciences are real learning and humanities is just talking about books. So the studies of humanities or the classics might have led to political thought, which people thought were... We can't let ladies do that. Yeah, that would be dangerous for women. No, 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 no. All right. So in the 1800s, this really becomes uh, kind of standard in the educational world that women should stick to the sciences. And I wanted to talk briefly... About um, someone about from John history. Raymond. That's a man. What's he doing in our podcast? Well, he's the first president of Vassar College. Oh, that's a ladies' college. And he was pretty well known for his belief that women should never study anything political, but that science was a suitable practice for them. I, I, I'm glad that we got the judgment down from a man about what's suitable for our lady brains. <laughs> right. Um, he is going to write a couple of different pieces that talk about how women uh, really could be damaged by too much political thought. Whereas... What would happen to us? Well, hold on. Okay. Hold on. Oh, hold God. on. She's it's, building it's up. be awesome. She's building up to something. Uh, but the, the study of science was delicate. And so, therefore, it was more appropriate for women uh, because, you know, we don't want to get all upset, which would cause uterine problems. Are you telling me that political thought would cause my uterus to fall out? Uh, I'm not going to tell you it was going to cause it to fall out. But. Oh, my God. But. In the 1850s, we're going to start to see a shift. And the danger goes from studying the classics and humanities to studying science. But the outcome the danger thing is kind of the same in both. So in the 1850s, what happened was science became less about observation and just what is happening and became more about theories and experiments. And it also became more radical 
So the easy example of this is Charles Darwin. Sure. Okay. So we're changing theories of life in the world as we know it. Paradigm shifting discoveries. Exactly. Obviously no place for women. So now you can go read literature and study languages. So Edward Clark in 1873 is going to argue that the study of science itself would prove that females are physiologically unable to handle it. And that females who studied too hard ran a risk of becoming thoroughly masculine in nature and hermaphilic in mind. Oh, for... Which is the exact same argument that was used against women learning political science 100 years before. Isn't that amazing? We just have generations of men saying women should be definitely excluded from this. Uh, but, but the, the this changes. But the this changes. And the to whatever is the most powerful course of study or the most powerful activity. So when the classics were powerful because they related to political science and forming our society, and we were in the age of revolutions, and we were in the age of revolutions, we got to keep women out of that. But now that we have, uh, now that. Hi- it's more historical or theoretical study and has to do with literature and languages than, but now science is powerful because we are paradigm shifting, inventing, discovering, and using technology. And one more thing. That is a source of power, so we've got to take women away from that. The other thing that changes about science is that it becomes, quote unquote, professional. So most scientists before the 1870s were amateur scientist yeah you know i'm just gonna happen to be tinkering around with this and i come up with this idea or i mix these two things together but in the 1870s we start to see degrees being offered in it we start to see whole whole courses of studies at universities Mm -hmm. based on science and that in and of itself is going to exclude women because women aren't invited into those educational spheres so once you have to start being a professional scientist women get left behind so it was historically a place for women to study when it wasn't professional study right but once we make it professional then we have to leave the we're not going to pay a woman for science why did you start this by saying that we've had equal and fair representation this whole time i didn't say totally but in the 1600s women had pretty major contributions to science and the one thing that women were known for doing early on was they were able to take these ideas that other people had come up with and explain them in ways that people could understand. Yeah. But then, again, when we make it professional, women are going to get left behind. So, again, I I talked about Edward Clark already, right? Yeah. Um, He's the professor at Harvard Medical School, and he's going to take it one step further and says women just didn't study science. And he says that college-level education at all is going to be dangerous for women. So... I'm looking, I'm looking at a quote you have here that says, strenuous thinking could cause women to substitute, quote, masculineness for distinctive feminine traits. Mm-hmm. And keep going. And to risk becoming sterile, unwomanly creatures, quote, analogous to the sexless class of termites. Women could study so hard that basically their uterus- uteruses would cease to work. And he was a medical doctor. Well, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, people were saying if you exercise too hard, your uterus is going to fall out. So it's not all that out of range for his time period. Thinking too hard. Would dry up your uterus. And the idea that that being thoughtful and being well-educated and being in the professional sciences is masculine is true in his classical sense because it's something you're only letting men do. Exactly. And that becomes like a self-fulfilling loop, right? Only men are capable of doing this, so we only let men in. So women must not be able to do it because they haven't been let let into the clubs yet. Right. So they can't get an education, which means they're dumb, which means they don't need an education because they're dumb. But again, if we look back before that professionalization, it was different. Uh, Maria Mitchell is elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1848. And while today we would look at her as like a trailblazer, at the time... She looked at herself as a bookend because she said, there aren't women following me into this. Oh. Women are being pushed out. I'm afraid I might be the last one. So Man. isn't it just like a different perspective 
she's worried about being the last one. And we're like, oh, my God, she was so early. It's Sciences aren't really a safe place for women even now. Because our uteruses will dry up? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Tell me what you mean. A 2015 study found that one in three uh, female science professors reported sexual harassment. And that, again, we've talked about this before, but... Uh, the reporting there is going to be low. So it's more than that. Yes. But those are the ones that either self-report or the ones who recognize it. And so what the report is basically saying is that women are being harassed out of science. So it's if if you are working in a lab as a college student or a graduate student, and that is the culture of where you're working, you're more likely to change your field of study, or you're more likely to get a job outside of your field of study because you're being harassed out of science. And, of course, women who identify as LGBTQ or women of color more likely than their straight white counterparts to have been harassed. Women of color more likely to report feeling just generally unsafe because of their gender. Well, and then if those women are in academia, they're graded harder by students than... Than faculty, by faculty? No, like in faculty evaluations. Like their oh, students yeah, think yeah. that... Female professors, especially in the sciences, yes. are less competent yes. than male professors. That's true. Even female scientists who are more academically qualified. Right. And they're more likely to be evaluated based on their appearance exactly. and, their, and their disposition rather than their knowledge or their credibility. Like rate my professor in the chili peppers, which they finally got rid of. Yeah, but but even then, a student's perception of you, if you are a female professor, is more likely to be based on your appearance and your disposition. So the other thing about science, and especially academic study of science, is that, believe it or not, there's kind of a star culture. So institution, I know that we don't really think of scientists as being stars. Well, no, I'm just I'm thinking that people that are listening to this are going to think you're talking about astronomy and not like oh. celebrities. No, the, there are within the field celebrity scientists. Yes. And for the most part, not people whose names that we would recognize, but they make institutions a lot of money and they attract so people want to go study with so-and-so scientists at that institution so they bring in grad top, students top talent for graduate school and so if you are a celebrity scientist then you can kind of get away with anything and so targets of harassment rarely formally report their negative experiences often because they perceive they might experience retaliation they are in positions of significantly less power in the institution, and then so their perception is, if I report it, not only is it not going to benefit anyone, it's actually just going to make it worse for me. Well, and the other fear that they have is they'll get labeled as whistleblowers or troublemakers. Yeah, troublemakers, yeah. So if you're wanting to move up, sometimes it's better just to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, and I mean, this is happening in laboratories, observatories, offices, teaching hospitals. It's been reported in Antarctica, in their field study sites. So no place is safe. <laughs> if we can't even go to Antarctica. Can't even get free from sexual harassment in Antarctica. Which for some reason I have a very hard time saying the word Antarctica. But anyway. So there are decades of research on sexual harassment in medicine, engineering, and science. There's also qualitative research. So interviews with harassment victims. And this is coming from the National Academies of Science. You're it's, not making it up. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's pervasive is the word that is repeated pervasive harassment of women in the sciences which harms their career prospects keeps them from being able to advance and make more money so it has an economic toll but also of course an emotional and personal toll causing stress and sometimes a physical toll so sometimes sexual harassment becomes physical assault or abuse well and it kind of also feeds into that that loop again right like, if more women continue to drop out of science, right. the understanding becomes, oh, they're less capable. Ladies don't want, yeah, to be in sciences. And again, that's not what's happening. Right. It's not a, a, an ability of talent. You can't put up a gate to keep women out. And, and they complain that there's no women in. Look around inside the gate and be like, there's no women here. I guess they're just not interested. Right. Um the quote from the report is, more rapid and sustained progress in closing the gender gap in science, engineering, and medicine is jeopardized by the persistence of sexual harassment and its adverse impacts on women's careers in colleges and universities. 
So academic institutions, and as we know, for the most part, are designed to protect themselves, not to protect the people who work there or even necessarily their students. Well, because colleges and universities have become brand names. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to tarnish your brand. Right. So Kim Barrett, who's the graduate dean at the University of California, San Diego, um, UCSD, said that she didn't know of a single woman in her subfield of gastroenterology who had not been sexually harassed. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I don't even have anything to say Margaret Margaret Leinen of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography described a conversation she once overheard between one male and five female scientists at a meeting where sexual harassment was being discussed. The man said, I don't see what the fuss is about. I've never met anyone who has been sexually harassed. The women just looked at each other and said, well, now you've met five. Well, I think that's part of the problem too, right? Yeah, so if, if you're not perpetrating it and you're not receiving it you often are not observant of it it's not that you're not aware you're you're not paying attention and you should be well and i think that there is this perception sometimes of if i'm not the active perpetrator Mm -hmm. then i have no role in stopping it right and that just completely shirks some responsibility right yeah even if you're a bystander, there's a role for you to play here. I mean, we have we have instances of professors hand feeding ice cream to female graduate students, professors making jokes in class about female students' appearances, male professors getting together to talk about the females who work in the graduate studies lab or the postdoc research labs. We have uh, men saying that the only reason they go to scientific conferences is to have an affair. Well, that's nice. And that's only sexual harassment. There is also pregnancy harassment. Explain that. So this is just one instance of doctoral student or a former doctoral student said that her job at a large research center was cut due to lack of funding when she told her advisor she was expecting only to see the position offered the next week to one of her friends. So obviously that lack of funding got fixed within seven business days. Right. And they didn't bother to hire back the person who had had that job. She said, I confided in my department chair that I believe I had been fired and discriminated against due to my pregnancy. She replied, are you sure? Because women in your condition have pregnancy brain and often can misinterpret situations. Wow. And she said, this is a quote, I realized I was screwed. No job, no support and no health insurance. That is just devastating. Yeah. Pregnant undergraduates and graduate students are frequently told that their only option is to withdraw from their program with no guarantee of readmission. Withdrawing can mean losing your academic progress, your tuition, your fellowships, your funding, your on-campus jobs, sometimes your housing, sometimes your health insurance. So, I mean, obviously I wasn't a science grad student. Right. I was a history grad student. But some of these things are across the board. Uh, When I was a graduate student, we were told by a female professor that if any of us were married, we weren't going to advance in our field because we weren't serious about our study. What? Yeah. That, what? Women who got married, she thought, were distracted. Did she tell the same thing to the men? She told this to a room full of male and female students because she was teaching a course on basically how to be a history professor. But she was addressing it specifically to women? Yes. But not to men? Not to men because men have a, a spouse at home to help them. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. 2008? 2008? Did you just say 2008? Yeah, because I thought it was going to... I forgot how old I am. (laughs) I was going to say it was 2012, but it wasn't. It was 2008. 2008. I'm getting old. (laughs) Social welfare researcher and sociological researcher Mary Ann Mason and her colleagues in a research study found that of the women women who entered their postdoc program intending to be research professors, 41% who had children during postdoc decided against their career. By contrast, men who became fathers during their postdoc years changed their trajectory half as often, roughly the same rate as anybody else, childless postdocs, because there's a rate of attrition or there's a standard number of people who are going to change their career trajectory. So almost no or no measurable impact no statistical on, difference. on male postdoc researchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, 41% of women who are pregnant during postdoc change their career. That's a, a major difference. Yeah. 
So an environment that demeans women, makes them feel frightened or excluded is also an environment in which women have difficulty excelling, right? So even if you are a person who says, I'm going to endure it because this is what I'm passionate about, a situation nobody should ever have to be in, you also just have difficulty becoming the, at someone who's at the top of your field because you are left out of opportunities and excluded from the best or the choicest positions. Well, and sometimes supervisors may even think that they're doing you a favor. Like, I'm not going to send you to this conference. I'm not going to give you funding because that would mean time away from your child. Yeah. They make assumptions about what you want for you. Yeah. And so women who work in labs and hospitals where they experience harassment, obviously more likely to be absent from work, more likely to avoid conferences and meetings, and more likely to quit their jobs. Wow. But what we have in our country is a projected deficit of a million college-educated STEM positions, which means that we have to get more people into careers related to science and math, period. Has to happen. And women can fill that gap, obviously. There are fewer women being educated in the sciences and fewer women taking those positions. Wait. So supporting women might help us all? That's a crazy I idea. I feel like we've been saying that for 20 <laughs> episodes. 20 episodes. But here's the thing. We can encourage little girls to become interested in STEM, whether it's from slime or making, Legos. making robots. But when they reach the final stages of their education, after, you know, 20 years of being a student, they change their trajectory because the lab is not a place they feel safe. I guess not all science happens in a lab, but the scientific environment is not a place they feel safe, which means that that's about $500,000 worth of education that isn't being utilized. Wow. I mean, to put a, like a, a monetary value on that, you can see just how powerful that is. Yeah. And that's got to be so hard to walk away from. But to make a choice between that or your safety... I mean, how do you do that? So how you do that, so Ben Barnes is a Stanford neurobiologist, and he's been very vocal about the treatment of women in science and technology, math, engineering, medical field. He said reputation is one way that they can control behavior, which means that if a person harasses women, mistreats women, or generally makes a place unwelcoming for women, that it should become as public as possible. Because you can kind of disintegrate a person's star factor if it is known that they are what he calls a serial perp. Well, and if, if the university's got to pay out for yeah, harassment then lawsuits. The, then they're a liability mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of a draw. So that's one suggestion. Another is to just financially, as an institution, make an intentional effort to support the work of female researchers and female scientists so that they feel like they have some agency in the laboratory or the field or the scientific environment. Putting more women in positions to make decisions and to have power and to have research and to lead studies, not because they're women, but because they're qualified for the job, but intentionally making the environment uh, have a different climate. The American Medical Association has been saying for several years now that female scientists and, and researchers aren't getting funding the way that men are. And part of that is because there are fewer women who get that far into the field because they've been harassed out at some point in time. But part of it is just funding discrimination. Well, and I think part of that funding discrimination is that these worlds become very, very small. And it's like a club. Yeah. And so the people who decide who to give funding to went to grad school. Right. And then worked with right. and then collaborated with the people that are applying. Right. And if we had a generation that kept women out, right, that generation now control things and they're going to keep, not maybe not even not on purpose, maybe not even consciously, yeah. but they keep women out. Right. And, and so if you aren't in that club, if you aren't networked that way, you as a female are not in a position to just, as they say, just pick up the phone and call somebody. Right. And so then you have to be a rock star to get noticed and to get funding. And even then you're maybe still not going to get anything and if maybe still not get as much. Yeah. So we do have some pretty awesome stories about some pretty... Because we don't want to just be a complete downer the whole time. <laughs> I mean, Misty does. 
history. She loves to do that, as you all know. That's basically my profession. We just tell sad stories all the time. I feel like that is your profession. Is it not? Occasionally we throw in something uplifting. Do you want to put these in chronological order? I do, because my brain will hurt if we don't. Okay, fine. Then the first one we're going to talk about is Mary Anning. Tell me all about Mary Anning. So Mary's her first name. Anning is her last name. Thank you. Her name is not Mary Ann Ing, but Mary Anning. She was born May 21st, 1799. That was a long time ago. Kind (laughs) of. Long to me, not long to you. And she died in March of 1847. So she is described as the greatest fossilist the world ever knew. But she is so obscure that many paleontologists are not aware of her contribution. Well, that's amazing. She was, I mean, she was a woman in a man's world. Right. So the world of scientific study in this... Well, because the study of fossils wasn't necessarily considered a natural study because it wasn't plants and gardening and... Okay, so this was not something that ladies could have handled. Well, and it was not something that women had... I mean, in in right. people's estimation, well, obviously they Well, but they also they didn't have access to it because... Women are not going to be sent away to do this kind of research, like to go sure, dig up field, a fossil. Yeah, it's field research. Right. Whereas women in science were generally kind of doing it in their own gardens, right? Well, so the thing is, she did this in her own neighborhood. Ooh, okay, so awesome. all of these fossils were, not all of them, but a lot of them and the ones that brought her into notoriety were found in the town or the village where she lived. So by the 19th century, the study of the earth became central to kind of the life of Great Britain. People became fascinated in the 1800s by studying earth, geology, paleontology. Women could collect fossils and mineral specimens, obviously, so like you're saying, observational, mm-hmm. right? They could collect things and they could attend lectures, but they weren't allowed to be members in the scientific societies because those were professional, right? And they were like clubs. Yeah. They would actually have a meeting and like drink and smoke and discuss their ideas. So, of course, we can let women go out and collect things and put them in a little basket. And we can let women come into a lecture hall and listen to if what they sit in the back to what men have to say, but then to not be part of any of the decision making. Yes. Her family was very poor, uh, which means she didn't attend very much school, didn't have very much formal education. She, for the most part, taught herself to read and write. And so it was out of natural curiosity that this came about. So by the middle of the 1820s, she had established herself as kind of the keen eye. And she also studied, self-studied the anatomy of animals so that she would know what to look for and to know what she's finding in terms of fossils. Okay. They had a family fossil business. (laughs) That's a funny idea to me. I know. I'm just imagining like a food truck. But they sell fossils instead so of museums. Tacos. So museums, uh, scientists, and also nobility. Mm-hmm. So dukes and duchesses yes. for their own private collection so that they can, you know, entertain people with their curiosities. But a lot of wealthy and noble people in Europe had substantial private collections of fossils and natural curiosities. That was a very common thing in the mid-1820s or the mid-1800s. She made some actually very important finds. So a lot of things she found were kind of relatively pedestrian, right? So minerals or kinds of rocks or commonly found bones and fossils. But she discovered a pleosaur. Why are you making that face? Is it pleosaur Plesiosaur. Oh, it is. It's plesiosaur. So she discovered a plesiosaur. The famous French anatomist. We're so good at science. We are. George Cuvier doubted the validity of the specimen when he first examined a drawing of it. He thought it was something different or he didn't believe it was a fossil? He thought that she had taken a bunch of random bones and put them together. Okay. So she was, he thought she was faking it. But once he realized that it was genuine... The Annings became legitimate and respected fossilists. So as opposed to people who peddled minor curiosities, they became kind of respected scientifically as people who were making important discoveries. Because if you think about a person in Mary Anning's position, she's not just collecting bones and selling them, right? She is figuring out, she's 
aware of what she's finding right because she's also studying anatomy so she didn't like pick up a bunch of bones and then somebody else figured it out she realized that she had found something important important and uh she was and she was also able to kind of sketch and draw the things that she found she made a lot of incredible discoveries and so she became kind of famous in, in that time period and people would come to her for advice or to s- discuss what their ideas were about fossils. When she was 12, she and her brother discovered an ichthyosaur. Sure. Which translates to f- fish lizard. They thought at first that it was a crocodile, but she discovered an ancient reptile called an ichthyosaur. I don't know. She also found a flying reptile called a dimorphodon. Somebody who loves dinosaurs and is listening to this is like, what are you doing? We are butchering this. This is terrible. (laughs) But she had to teach herself geology, anatomy, paleontology, and scientific illustration. And That's actually really impressive. Yeah. That she had to have all of those things to do this. Because geology is the rocks. Anatomy is how the body parts are fitting together. Because... If you don't know what you're doing, then oh, you're I gonna, couldn't reconstruct something. Like right, you're that. just no. going to scramble mm-hmm. it all. Uh, paleontology to understand dinosaurs, right? And scientific illustration, which is its own field, because you have to understand how to represent things and, and draw things to scale and things like that. So she had no formal scientific training, but she made all these discoveries. She was self-taught. She had local area knowledge, and she had skill right? At seeing things and finding things and knowing where to look. So she earned a good reputation among the paleontologists at the time. And she also figured out how to make deductions from observation, which is, you know, an important part of the scientific method. She wasn't just bringing them things and saying, tell me what this is. Right. And she studied how museums prepared specimens for display. She became an expert in the delicate work of removing fossilized bones from rock and then reconstructing skeletons. She learned to read French so that she could read scientific papers. That's impressive. Yeah. She dissected organisms to learn more about anatomy. I mean, I guess you kind of have to do that, but ew. <laughs> and I mean, there are there is correspondence that of letters that she's sending to people who are employed by museums where she's saying that she dissected a ray. I think that's like a manta ray. And she's talking about genus and vertebrae and lots of words I don't know. Um, (laughs) Did you take college biology? No. I had a lab where they just took all these organs and put them on a table and we had to identify what they all were. I could identify the heart and the lungs. Everything else was a liver. That seems so gross. Oh, I failed. I failed miserably. That seems so gross. Um, So her work is described by Lady Harriet Sylvester, one of these kind of rich people of the time. And the quote is, she made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. She fixes the bones on a frame with cement and then makes drawings and has them engraved. By reading and application, she has arrived to that degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone in this kingdom. Wow. Yeah. I bet that hurt a lot of men's feelings, too. (laughs) But because what she was doing was outside of the official kind of institution, there wasn't a lot of documentation for what she was doing. So aside from the people who personally knew her, she didn't get a lot of notoriety. And so she has kind of been forgotten in some ways by the scientific community and most historians because she's not a part of the kind of official record. People who donated specimens to institutions tended to be credited with their discovery. Well, but the other thing there is she's doing all this before the quote unquote professionalization of the industry, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So I am willing to bet that leaving her out was probably a conscious choice, at least after the 1870s. Because because if we acknowledge a woman can do this and look at how much knowledge she had, we would have to then acknowledge that women probably can still do this. Well, and so collectors donating specimens to institutions tended to be credited with their discovery so found by such and such but most of the things that she found and recovered were even the ones described in journals 
were described without a mention of her name. And this is both because she was poor and because she was a woman. And so people don't, and because she wasn't formally educated. Most scientists just couldn't believe that she was doing it. And again, even the ones who realized she was weren't giving her proper credit. She couldn't fully participate in scientific research. She couldn't be a formal member of the Geological Society of London. And she really never received proper credit for her work. She wrote an essay in just her notebook called Woman! And she writes, And what is a woman? Was she not made of the same flesh and blood as lordly man? Yes. And was destined, doubtless, to become his friend, his helpmate on his pilgrimage, but surely not his slave. Wow. Which, I mean, I mean that for the 1850s. All, right? yeah. yeah. In 1865, Charles Dickens wrote an article about Mary Anning's life in his literary magazine. And he emphasized the difficulties that she overcame. And I'm going to read you the quote, even though it's Charles Dickens, and I'm sure he bores you. I hate Dickens. Her history shows what humble people may do if they have just purpose and courage enough toward promoting the cause of science. The inscription under her memorial window commemorates her usefulness in furthering the science of geology. It was not a science when she began to discover, and so she helped make it one. And also her benevolence of heart and integrity of life. The carpenter's daughter had won a name for herself, and she has deserved to win it. I mean, it's really nice, but it kind of is a little elitist. What do you mean? He's also he's kind of saying like, oh, look what humble people can. Like, it's a little backhanded. Like, oh, can you believe she did this? If they have just purpose and courage enough. I mean, I think... Maybe that's just the way Dickens writes. He always kind of seemed like a jerk to me. I, th- I mean, I think that... He, I definitely don't think he was classist, based on my knowledge of Charles Dickens. I think he was trying to inspire other people who think of themselves as humble. Hmm. But I think the most interesting part of that quote is that she helped further the science of geology. And he notes, it was not a science when she began to discover, and so she helped to make it one. Right? Yeah, that's interesting. In 2010, she was recognized by the Royal Society as one of the 10 most influential female scientists in British history. In 2010. Yes. Which I'm sure she appreciated. And e- again, even that list is the 10 most influential female scientists in British history. So of the ladies, she's the top one of the top 10. And I think that she is right there on that precipice of when women could be natural foragers for science and then when women were being pushed out of science, right? Because you said that was mid-1800s when that happened. Right, because um, Charles Darwin comes along in the 1850s, and that's the the profound shift there. Okay. Because so, yeah. that's when we start theorizing and really putting forward, I, I mean, I say it's radical, the theory of evolution, but at the time it was. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you want to take us to World War II? That's your favorite time period. I want to take us to World War One. Oh. I want to go before World War II. Actually, um, we're going to start this story in 1909. As early as is humanly possible, <laughs> I'm sure. So in 1909, Virginia Apgar is born mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And she has an early interest in scientific hobbies. That's the way they put it. Um, her father was really interested in science, too. And then um, her two brothers... One got tuberculosis and ended up dying, and the other one has a chronic illness. So early on in her life, she said she wanted to understand why this happened and how it happened. So after high school, she is going to proclaim that she wants to become a doctor, and she gets a scholarship to Mount Holyoke. And then she graduates in 1929 with a major in zoology. Zoology? I know, right? It's a little different. Okay. She's going to attend the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. And she'll graduate from there in 1933. She really wanted to become a surgeon. That was kind of her dream. But the chair of surgery is going to encourage her to go in a different direction. He didn't say that women couldn't do this. But he said that women surgeons failed to have sustained careers. What does that mean? It basically means that hospitals and patients, when they had a choice of surgeons would always choose a male. So it wasn't that women weren't capable. It's that there was no money to be made. 
And so he's going to encourage her. But that's her. again like a self-fulfilling loop, it's, right? It, yes, absolutely. She's going to go a different route. And he is going to encourage her to go into anesthesiology. Now, um, at the time, that was not a subfield in medicine. It was emerging. Okay. He says that she has the energy, the intelligence, and the ability to make significant contributions in this area. So he thought a lot of her. This wasn't yeah. demoting her in any way. It was, if you want to continue to be a surgeon, I'm just afraid you won't be able to support yourself. So here's this other option that I think you should look at. Okay. I mean, I just don't want to come down on him too hard. Yeah, but I mean, it was nice that at least she was in a program which recognized her skills and abilities, even if that program was still kind of clipping her career in a way, it was still But saying, at least it opened another path. I, I, I still want you to, to go far in your career. So anesthesiology is going to become a specialty in the mid-1940s. And the problem for her is that because it's so new, she was having a hard time finding people to train under. Um, but she does eventually find some people. Um, she has to move around a couple of times to do it. She goes to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's going to go to a couple hospitals in New York. And then in 1938, Dr. Apgar is going to return to Columbia University. And again, this is a new field. So not a lot of people here that can be hired to do this job. She's going to be the director of the Division of Anesthesia. And she's also going to serve as an attending anesthetist. Did I say that right? Anesthetist? Anesthetist. Oh. Anesthesiologist? Which word are we looking for? Uh, Anesthetist. Thank you. You obviously have not watched the Doctor, I mean, the Dear John podcast, because they say the word anesthetist like a hundred times. <laughs> he he was, a, he was a nurse anesthetist who pretended to be an anesthesiologist, and mm. so they use those words all the time, which means I can hear them in my head. Nice. So anyway, she was an attending anesthetist thank which is... you all right so Go. all right so dr apgar is not considered by most surgeons to be their equal because she was a woman Obviously. and because this was a field that was emerging so so she was a doctor not a nurse she is a doctor but she is in what they see as a lesser specialty they saw it as an easier route than being a surgeon i see okay so She's going to continue on, even though she realizes that people don't quite see her as an equal. And then in 1949, she becomes the first woman to become a full professor at Columbia University College of Ooh. Physicians and Surgeons. Now, I think part of the reason that she's able to do that is, one, it was an emerging field, right? There's not a whole lot of people in there. So she was one of the only experts. Right. Okay. But also, she already had a history at Columbia University. They already knew her, and they did respect her work. So she's going to be promoted to full professor. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. It's amazing. She is going to develop this new interest at this point in her career. And what she's concerned about is the effect of anesthesia on mothers and on children during childbirth. Interesting. Okay. So we have experimented with a bunch of different types of drugs we give women in labor. And she was concerned that... Some are healthier than others. Okay. In the 1920s, we actually had this thing called twilight birth, where they would completely knock the woman out, essentially like put her to sleep, and then birth the child while she's asleep. I mean, you had a kid. Doesn't that sound like a dream? <laughs> kind of. But you're like... No, yeah, obviously. You're taking it, that experience. It would just be very yeah. creepy, and then you'd be missing a lot of things that are emotionally important to you. I was just kind of right. making a joke. Well, like, you have no agency, too, right? You're completely knocked out. Yeah. God knows what they're doing to you. They could knock you off the table, and you wouldn't know. So she's going to develop this thing that becomes really important called the APGAR score. Have you ever heard of this? No. Um, this is a test that was given to newborn infants. And it's basically checking their health. So oh, okay. we're going to look at heart rate, respiratory effect, muscle tone, reflex response, and color. Oh, okay. Everything is scored from a zero. I one they just counted the fingers and toes. Is yeah. that a, do they still do that? It I always mean, seemed like a weird thing. Like, why is that your only metric for success? So it's good to know that since the eight, 1940s, we've had an actual metric for, yes, for the yes. health of a, a newborn baby. 
not just numbers of fingers and toes. Right. Okay. So heart rate, respiratory effort, muscle tone, reflex response, and color. Meaning right. to check circulation, well, color. Right, and, and to check um, breathing. All right. So the points are given as zero to two and then calculated together to give the baby's score. Uh, this test is going to be used by her in the late 1940s, but it's presented to a meeting in 1952 and then it's published in 1953. Well, so she published it like in a medical journal. Basically, yes. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And there is some initial resistance to this because some doctors had their own system that they preferred to use. Maybe the fingers and toes thing. I'm the not Joe sure. Bob system. Yes, exactly. Baby health checking. But this becomes the accepted standard and it's still used today. Um, the APGAR score is taken one minute after birth and at five minutes after birth. Interesting. Yes. I'm both proud of her and a little surprised we haven't come up with anything better in the last 70 years. Right. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. She becomes obviously famous for the APGAR score. Mm -hmm. And her lasting contribution here is to the health of women in labor and then newborn infants. After the mid-1950s, she decided to retire. She never married and she never had children of her own. Very rare, right? For the 50s? Very rare. Well, it's also rare that she's a doctor. Yeah. So, and she never wrote about this. She never really talked about it. But I'm wondering if there was some pressure on her, maybe, to fully devote herself to her professional life. Interesting. And maybe that prevented. I, I mean, I don't know this. this so, like, just, what they told you in graduate school? Yes. This yeah. is pure speculation on my part. Sure. It just interests me that she had this longing to help women in labor. Mm -hmm. And... That never, wasn't yeah, the experience never had that she had. Generally, people find that passion for things that they have personally experienced. Yeah, I think the other thing is it could be that she was pressured, but it also could be that she just naturally felt that way. I mean, maybe yeah. There are people who are just I'm more interested in working than in developing Absolutely. you know a marital or a parental relationship. And as a historian, this is so frustrating when people don't just, like, write it in a diary. Like, if people would just write in a diary and tell us their thoughts. So if you think that you will, if for any reason, become ever become famous or important, famous, historically notable, or influential, you need to start keeping a diary. Yeah. I mean, my sister's an archivist, and so she always says, like, please write in pencil on the back of a photo what this is a photo of. <laughs> So are you ready to talk about someone who's a little more modern and a little less historical? I am. I'm excited about this one. But just as historically significant? I don't know. I think the word you're looking for is important. Okay. English Thank you. professor. So I want to talk to you about Tierra Fletcher. All right. She is 24 years old. Currently. Like right now. Today. Right today. I mean, I don't know her birthday, so she could possibly be 25 as of today. I don't know, but she's 24. She's the youngest member of the engine section task leading team, which doesn't sound like a lot to you yet, but she works for Boeing, and this team is responsible for building an engine section for a rocket that will send people to Mars. Oh, wow. And or the moon. They need a better name for their team. Well, I mean, I think their team is like the Mars people, but her team is on building a section of an engine. The rocket itself is 188,000 pounds. Uh, most of the scientists on her team, there's 15 people on the team. Most of them are men in their 50s. Okay, so not only is she kind of not the usual because of her gender, also because of her age. Also, she's black. So she landed her first job with the Space Launch Systems Program, so this contractor for NASA, before her senior year of college, where she was attending, when she was attending MIT. So she's a junior in college or the summer between junior and senior year of college. And she gets a job essentially working for NASA, building something that will be sent to Mars. As a female when I think about what I was doing, of color. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Working for NASA. That's amazing. Before she graduated from college. Before she turned 30. I mean, this is crazy. She's been working as a rocket structural engineer at NASA's Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans. She's the sole woman on the team. She goes to work at 5 a.m. She has to wear a clean room attire. What does that mean? Uh, like a hazmat suit? Like the the white suits. Oh, okay. They look okay. similar to hazmat suits, but um, I think it's just so like, like no contamination. Dust or particles doesn't get into what they're working on. 
um, and she crawls around the engine section of a 322-foot-high rocket, overseeing installations and performing inspections. She was hired in June of 2016 to design and analyze the hardware for the largest NASA rocket ever created. It's amazing that she's doing that before she even graduates college. Yeah. Like, they have that much trust in her. It's the lo- it's the fastest and largest rocket ever created. Wow. And that rocket is called the Space Launch System. I'm not in charge of naming things for NASA, okay? So, Tierra, she tells people that her path to becoming the this historically important person began with nerds the candy okay so when she was six years old she wanted a box of nerds but the only way her mom would give her any is if she could compute the price of the weekly groceries as they walked through the supermarket so she had to calculate the prices of bread cereal lunch meat she had to subtract what they had coupons for then she had to calculate and add the tax in her head yes And when she was correct, she got a box of nerds. By age seven, she was able to do this almost every time they went shopping correctly. And then she was able to help her older sister with algebra homework. Wow. Imagine. When she was 11, members of her fifth grade class went on a week-long study program at Lockheed Martin. And so she, from the time she was 11, wanted a career in aerospace engineering because she had this week-long work program. I mean, they're fifth graders, so I don't know what kind of studying or working they're doing, but they're imagining themselves in the field. And so from that point forward, which wasn't very many years ago because she's only 24, she imagined herself in the field. And so it's what we've been talking about before, that being able to see yourself doing something makes it a possibility in your mind. Right. That's just, it's very impressive. And she thought about becoming an astronaut but then said to herself, you can't design spacecraft if you're in space. And she was more interested in designing an engineering spacecraft than she was in being in space. She says that her gender and her race have, quote, presented situations where people make assumptions, which I think is a very mild way to put it. She said, my parents taught me that as an African-American female, things aren't going to come easy. Their message was to work 100% harder than others and to focus on my goal no matter what naysayers said. I get so focused on a project that I don't even know others are present. She counts Katherine Johnson. You know, it's funny because the whole time you're talking, I'm thinking like, this sounds so much like Katherine Johnson, who we've talked about before. Yeah. She counts Katherine Johnson as one of her role models. uh, And she says, even when everything was against her, she still did what she wanted to get done and made history as a result. She's been a huge motivation in my study. It's just like you said, she was interested in and excelled at math from a very young age, and she had parents who encouraged and supported her, and she got opportunities to envision herself in these roles, and she worked as hard as she could to get there. She now, in addition to being this young female rocket scientist, she also mentors children and young people who are interested in careers in aerospace. That's really cool. And she says, in speaking with, she says the youth. (laughs) She sounds like she's 80. Speaking with the youth. And I'm just like, but you are the youth. You're the youth. Okay. She says, I get tons of amazing questions such as, how did I get exposed to STEM? How did I get where I am today? But I also get difficult questions like, what is a Hohmann transfer? Which is an orbital maneuver that transfers a satellite or spacecraft from one circular orbit to another. Or how long it will take for us to get to Mars, or how long we will stay on Mars. So she gets asked, like, how did you do it? But she also gets asked questions by kids who are so interested that they're already thinking, like, when are we going to get to Mars? How long can we stay on Mars? How do you do this? How do you do that? Right? So they are, she's sparking already that kind of curiosity in children. She's asked about her experience in being African American woman in a space dominated by Caucasian males. And I'm just going to tell you this, Misty. I watched that Apollo 11 movie. Have you heard about it? It's a documentary. Oh, no. Do you know what Apollo 11 is? Yes. I was thinking um, that movie that came out like 20 years ago. That about- but no, go ahead. That's Apollo 13. Cool. Apollo 11 is when we walked on the moon. Yes. You're familiar? I didn't, didn't know there was a documentary out about okay. it. So there's a documentary and it's archive footage from NASA. Oh, yeah. 
What? Are you just stunned by everybody looking exactly the same, like little clones of each other? I don't know what to tell you, man. I feel like, so the movie is amazing, and I definitely recommend that you watch it, and it's super cool. But? But the subtitle of that movie is, in my mind, look at all these white guys. (laughs) Not just the three astronauts. Literally everyone. Yes. Everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, oh, no, no. That's a guy. The every, I mean, the only time you see women in the movie is if they're kissing their wives and children goodbye, or they have a lot of scenes of people. Like in crowds? In crowds watching yeah. things or people on the news talking about it. But there were no women anywhere. And there were almost no non-white people anywhere. Yes. It, and they all dressed the same also. Yeah, that's but, the thing. They're like clones. And they're all smoking cigarettes in the command center. So she said, this is her quote, I have definitely been the only female and sometimes the only African-American person on the teams I work on. Not having someone there who looks like you can be sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes even intimidating because you know you have much more to prove than anyone in the room. But it just encourages me to do my best. So she knows that in her kind of unique position, that she is already the kind of representation that other people need to make this space less intimidating in the future. She's aware of that responsibility in addition to the responsibility of being a 25-year-old, 24-year-old rocket scientist. She says, I'm honored to say that I have a part in the history of the space launch system. It's an honor to be able to look at a drawing of your creation and see it come to life as parts are integrated and moved across the country. There is a learning curve working as a rocket scientist. However, I am surrounded by people who have spent years working on rockets and planes. These people have learned through successes and failures. So, I mean, even when she's just interviewed casually, she is very intentional about the way that she responds in a way that is both positive to say I'm honored, but in a way that says sometimes it really is challenging. And sometimes I really do have a lot on my shoulders in addition to the science and the math. So she wants to put people on Mars, right? And to continue our exploration of space. It's a scientific mission. And here's just what I want you to think about, okay? okay. Mathematically, even if it takes 20 more years send someone to Mars. Which is realistic? I don't know. Is that I, realistic? I don't know. Okay, this is a hypothetical. I'm just thinking John Kennedy said it in what, 61 and, and we sent somebody to the moon in 69? Yeah. So even if we say it's going to take 20 years before we figure out how to get someone to Mars. Okay. 20 years. Tierra will be 44. Wow. So that's not like she outside will, of her career. Like she's still going to be she working there will, probably. She will still be younger than the people she's currently working next to. Because they're mostly white men in their 50s. That's so crazy. Yeah, she's so young for this job. So she is exactly positioned to be the woman who puts someone on Mars. We've talked about intersectionality before, but I think this is a great example of this. I mean, because when you're the youngest person on a team, there's pressure. Yeah. When you're the only non-white person on a team, there's pressure. Yeah. When you're the only woman on a team, there's pressure. Yeah. Now you're all three. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we need you to also be a spokesperson for the generation coming behind you. And we need you to solve an unsolvable problem. I mean, all of that, in addition to however complex the math is that is involved in putting someone on the moon. Not just complex mathematically. You mean Mars? Yeah, Mars. <laughs> we have put someone on the moon. Not just mathematically, but like just creatively. Like You have to invent new ways of doing things. So, I mean, it's super impressive. And I do want to share a couple of things that have come out just in the last few days related to women in aerospace. Okay. Okay. So just last week, there's a flight scientist who, or a flight controller. So she's a scientist working for NASA, an aerospace engineer, trains astronauts, works in the control center. Her name is Kristen Fasiole. And she tweeted that she will be on the console providing support for the first all-female spacewalk. Oh, okay. With two astronaut, two female astronauts, Anne McLean with, and Christina Koch. 
So those are two residents of the International Space Station. They're about to have their first all-female spacewalk, and their support is also being provided on the console in the control room by a female flight engineer. That's really cool. I have another one for you. But I can already hear people having something to say about that on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So the head of NASA said last week also, last week was a very important time for women in NASA, but the head of NASA said that the first person on Mars will probably be a woman. Really? Yeah. The next trip to the moon, he said, will absolutely include a woman. And he said, in fact, the next person on the moon is likely to be a woman. He talked about the all-female spacewalk with Anne McLean and Christina Koch. It's going to last seven hours. Wow, that sounds so scary. I would not do that. Both of those women were part of the 2013 astronaut class at NASA. Half of that class was female. And they came from the second largest applicant pool NASA has ever received. Oh, wow. The most recent class of flight directors at NASA, also 50% female. And women currently comprise 34% of active NASA astronauts. So the first six women to join the astronaut corps, joined it in 1978. A full nine years after we walked on the moon, we got women in the astronaut corps. I actually have the roster Oh, from okay. 1978. We got a lot of 1970s uh, facial hair going on here. <laughs> <laughs> so they're very committed to putting a woman on the moon So Jim Bridenstine said on Science Friday, which is a podcast, an NPR podcast, that a woman is likely to be the first person on Mars. And then he listed all of these um, achievements or... Okay, so it's not like a a set plan. Right. They they haven't identified, but but he is saying, I think, kind of in in a way to encourage our positive understanding of what NASA is doing. And he's listing all of the, their kind of accomplishments in terms of representation, which is pretty good. I mean, half of the astronaut class, 34% of the active astronauts, and then uh, half of the flight directors are female. So it's much better than I thought it was going to be. And it's definitely much better than it was in 1969 when of course there were zero female astronauts. And from what I could see in that movie, zero women, zero women of any kind doing anything. So, I mean, Tierra Fletcher is an awesome scientist. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Are you happy with our progress in the sciences? So, I view this as kind of a renaissance. Because women were, since the 1600s, actively involved and contributing to sciences. And then in the 1870s and 80s, got kicked out. And now are being welcomed back in. So I don't see... Well, I wouldn't say... I mean, given all of the information we have on women being harassed out of science... They're being begrudgingly allowed to show up. Yeah. I mean, but I think it's... I think it's just like you said. I mean, even when you are in an institution like NASA, where the director of NASA or the administrator of the whole agency is clearly saying very publicly that representation and diversity is important to them. I still think that there are a lot of people within the agency and within the various labs and facilities who, number one, are not always fair and equitable in their treatment of women. Number two, are sometimes harassing women. And also a lot of people who are thinking she only got that job because she's a lady, mm-hmm. right? Like it's all PC garbage Mm -hmm. when in fact i mean the opposite is true like a lot of the the men who you're working with only got that job because they're a dude or because they were buddies with somebody or went to grad school with yeah because they had opportunities that only men had yes and it's and it's not that that i'm I'm not obviously nasa is an elite agency and i'm not saying that anyone there is unqualified but i mean women were left out of scientific opportunities for generations. So even when we have 
the heads of agencies, which what the guy at NASA is doing is not super common, right? We don't have the head of every government agency saying it's very important for us to have female representation at in all levels of our agency. You don't hear that a lot. But even then, I don't have like a super rosy view of what's probably happening day to day. And Tierra Fletcher has a very positive attitude about her working mm-hmm. conditions, but I don't know that that is univer- a universal experience. So I think... So maybe I'm the downer. <laughs> it's usually you. I know. But I think in this case, positive change is being made. And I think... Maybe this is just blind optimism. I think as we have more women going into STEM fields and colleges and then choosing to go into grad programs, Mm -hmm. which the numbers have been increasing, Mm I am hopeful that that will translate into more careers. I think we are at the edge of seeing that happen. I hope we're at the edge of seeing it happen. We're at the edge of something. Somebody is getting pushed off. Just kidding. But I, I, mean, I don't think that's it, right? It's not pushing anybody off. It's Tierra taking a spot on the uh, Mars rocket team, which is what I'm going to call that now. Yeah, that's definitely not what it's called, but that's fine. <laughs> didn't take away a spot from a male because there were no spots at all to begin with. Right. Like it's a new thing. Right. And I think that as we have more developing technology and more research into new things that nobody else has ever done before. It's not that we're crowding out men. It's that these are new spaces that need to be filled. It's a vacuum. I'm hopeful. Like space? (sighs) Like space. So this is going to be unique, but the next thing in our lady lives, it's the same thing because we're going together to the Texas Distance Learning Association's annual conference. Woo! Are you excited about our road trip? I am, actually. You are? Yeah, what's your presentation about again? I don't remember. Nice. I'm sure I'll remember before I give the presentation. What's yours about? Uh, Civic engagement with online students. Oh, yeah. I'm just kidding. It's more interesting than it sounds, I promise. Mine is about social presence in the online class. Oh, fancy. I know. It's pretty fancy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I'm not the downer for once. And I'm Allegra, and my sister is a library scientist. That counts. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great on a scientific scale. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all of those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, be a steminist. Be a steminist.